You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. One of these pew Bibles in front of where you're sitting. And if you're reading from the pew Bible, you can find Matthew 2.13 on page 758 in the pew Bible. If you're a guest with us today, you are finding us still near the beginning of our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We've only made it to chapter 2, so we haven't, you haven't missed much. Last week, we looked at the account of the wise men, those royal court officials from the Far East who saw the supernatural star in the sky that pointed them to a newborn king in the land of the Jews. They made that long journey to Jerusalem and began asking, where is this newborn king so that we can worship him? Their arrival and their question greatly alarmed the Roman-placed king there, King Herod. So he summoned the priests and the scribes and told them to find out where it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born. And they come back with the answer that it is Bethlehem. So Herod informs the wise men that Bethlehem is the place that they need to go. And he tells them, go there quickly, search high and low, find this king so I can come and worship him too. The wise men head to Bethlehem. And once again, the star directs them to the exact house. They enter and find Mary and the baby Jesus. They fall down and worship the newborn king and offer him gifts fit for a king. Then they leave and After they leave, they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and instead they go home another way. And that brings us to where we're at today in Matthew 2.13. And I want us to start by reading the rest of this chapter together. So if you'll follow along in your Bibles with me, beginning in verse 13. Here's what Matthew tells us. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This section of scripture completes Matthew's record of the infancy and earliest years of Jesus's life. And he does so in pretty dramatic fashion. There's something striking and surprising about this story as you're reading through this gospel. You you start Matthew with a genealogy of Jesus, which establishes him as the promised Christ, 
the true son of Abraham, the true son of David. You then have the angelic visit to Joseph telling him Mary is with child through the power of the Holy Spirit and the baby will be named Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Not only that, he'll also be called Emmanuel because he is God with us. That's incredible news. And then you have the wise men coming and recognizing the newborn king, giving him gifts fit for a king. There is such light and hope in the first chapter and into the second. And then suddenly things turn very dark. This is the dark backside of the Christmas story. But we shouldn't be too surprised by that. It shows the truth of what John describes in the intro of his gospel, that the true light was coming into the world. And we know that the light shines in the darkness and the light in the darkness hates the light because the light exposes its wickedness. The darkness wants to destroy the light, but as John tells us, the darkness has not overcome it. God's plans will always be opposed, but God's plans will never be stopped. And we see that vividly portrayed in our passage today. If you were to think of this passage like a play, you could divide it into three separate acts or sections. Uh, and there's a bit of a pattern as well. Each section or act begins with a time marker. Verse 13 says, now when. Verse 16 says, then. Verse 19 says, but when. There's a feeling Matthew is carrying us along in this story. But then each section is also ended or capped off with a statement about the word of the Lord being fulfilled. Matthew has loved to show us in these first two chapters how many times God's promises, his words are fulfilled in the events surrounding the birth of Christ. He wants us to see that God is a promise-keeping God. So let's take some time to look at each of these acts and see how God is fulfilling his promises even as the enemy is trying to snuff out the life of the Christ as a baby. So act one, we'll call act one the flight to Egypt. This is the flight to Egypt. The story seems to indicate that this is very soon after the wise men leave that the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and instructs him to rise, take the baby and Mary and flee to Egypt because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The, that command to rise literally is telling Joseph to wake up and do it now. And we see that's what he does. They leave by night and head to Egypt. These instructions are important because it would not have taken long for Herod to realize the wise men aren't coming back. Bethlehem is only about six miles away from Jerusalem. So that explains the angel's instructions. Egypt would be a natural direction to go. It would have been outside of Herod's jurisdiction. The border was only about 90 miles away, so roughly a week's journey. And at that time in the first century, there was a significant Jewish population in the Egyptian city of Alexandria, perhaps half a million Jews there. So that might have been where they went. I think we can also see God's provision through the wise men as well. Mary and Joseph were already away from home. They had traveled to Bethlehem for the census and had not returned home yet. They probably have next to nothing. So how are they going to finance this trip or this journey to Egypt. Imagine if you had to load up on a donkey with only what you can carry on your back and you had to head to Mexico. There's no debit cards, no credit cards. You have little to nothing. How are you going to survive in a foreign country for several years? 
well, the gifts of the wise men would come in pretty handy. I don't think they kept the gold, frankincense, and myrrh as keepsakes. I think God provided for them through the gifts of the wise men. And Matthew tells us in verse 15 that these events, them, them having to flee to Egypt, was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. It's a very interesting quotation because it's not a super famous Old Testament quote. If you were to try to guess where that quote came from, you'd probably be guessing for a while because that is a quote from Hosea 11.1. 1. When we think of Old Testament books that tell us about the coming Messiah, we think of Psalms, we think of Isaiah, we don't think of Hosea. And indeed, if you read that passage in Hosea, there's nothing about it that would ever make you think it has anything to do with Jesus. In that chapter, God is speaking of the nation of Israel as his son. And when it says, out of Egypt I called my son, it's speaking of the Exodus when God used Moses to bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So if that's what Hosea was talking about, why is Matthew quoting Hosea speaking about Israel in the Exodus? Is Matthew getting a little too creative in his connections here? Is he stretching the typology a little too far? Well, if you pair this with the next quote in verse 18, I believe we see Matthew is wanting to show a connection between the life of Jesus and the history of Israel. There are lines of continuity between events in Jesus's life and events in Israel's past. And in this specific quotation from Hosea, which for the prophet Hosea, it did refer to Israel, we find that in God's mind, this prophecy spoke not only of Israel, but also of Jesus. And ultimately, Matthew is wanting his readers to see that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true son. That passage in Hosea actually speaks of God bringing Israel out of Egypt, but then says, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more they kept sacrificing to false idols and false gods. And that is the tragic truth of Israel's history. They were God's chosen people, his child, he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, but they're hardly out of the country before they start grumbling and complaining. And then when God is ready to give them the promised land, what do they do? They give in to fear and unbelief rather than trusting God and his promises. Then the book of Judges shows us this repeating cycle of Israel turning away from God. They are repressed, uh, oppressed and suffer until they finally turn back to God. Things are good for a generation and then they turn away from God again, again, and again, and again. They are like a rebellious son who turns away in disobedience from a loving father. But now through his inspired writing, Matthew is putting forth Jesus as the true son. And Jesus does show himself to be the true son in every way. He never disobeyed the father. He never rebelled against the father. In every thought, in every word, in every deed, he perfectly followed the will of God and honored the father. And it's through his obedience and his righteousness that many can be made righteous. It's through his obedience as the true son and his obedience most clearly shown on the cross that he secures salvation for all who trust in him. And in a strange and wonderful way, this quote from Hosea applies to Jesus in both directions. God will deliver his son from Egypt and bring him back, but Jesus is also the deliverer himself. And with the allusions to the Exodus and the killing of the male children, Matthew 
I think also wants us to connect Jesus with Moses, the one God used to deliver his people from slavery. God sent Moses back to Egypt to gather his people so that he could bring them out. And in the same way, God has sent Jesus to Egypt and will bring him back to rescue and deliver his people from the bondage of sin. And that connects us to Act 2. We'll call Act 2 the Massacre of the Innocents. That's their traditional name in church history for this account, starting in verse 16, the Massacre of the Innocents. When Herod realizes he's been tricked and the wise men aren't coming back, he goes into a rage and he sends his troops to Bethlehem to kill every male child there and in the surrounding region who are two years old and under. That age is based on the time frame that the wise men communicated when they first saw the star. And so Herod's wanting to give himself plenty of wiggle room to make sure he does not miss this child. This is sheer evil. This is pure darkness. And this is nothing less than the enemy, Satan, trying to snuff out the life of the Messiah as a baby. At every turn, Satan will oppose God's plans, but God's plans will never be stopped. Herod does not know the child is there, is not there. Joseph, Mary, and the baby are already on their way to Egypt. Matthew then says, These events fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Once again, Matthew gives us a, a quotation that's a little puzzling at first. That quotation comes from Jeremiah 31, 15, which similar to Hosea does not seem to have anything to do with the Messiah. That passage from Jeremiah is God speaking to Israel after the exile to Babylon. The kingdom of Israel has fallen. The Babylonians have completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They've taken off all the best and brightest of the Israelites to Babylon to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian culture. And in 3115, it speaks of Rachel weeping for her children. It's really using Rachel figuratively to speak of Israel like a mother seeing her children destroyed and taken away. So what's Matthew trying to say to us? I believe there's multiple layers to this quotation. On the surface level, this does apply to the evil that's been done to the mothers and families there in Bethlehem. A wicked king has slaughtered their children just like Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered the Israelites long before. But there's also a strange hope to be found in that quotation because here's what it says following in Jeremiah 31, 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. There was hope for Rachel, that is Israel, even in the midst of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon because God was going to work through that dark time to again save his people. And in a similar way, Matthew is saying those words of Jeremiah were also echoing in the events surrounding Jesus's birth. It's as if God is saying, even in the midst of this horrible evil and darkness, he is going to bring about salvation for his people. God is going to bring beauty from ashes. He's going to bring joy from sorrow because he's going to bring back his true son from, uh, from the enemy to his own land, and there he's going to accomplish his work of salvation. 
It's impossible not to mention, again, the implied connection between Jesus and Moses. You remember Moses' story. Pharaoh becomes fearful that the Israelites have become too numerous, and so he orders that every male child that's born has to be thrown into the Nile River. But Moses' parents disobey the order. They keep him hidden until they eventually have to entrust him to God and put him in a basket in the river, and God does protect him. So in both accounts, God preserves the life of a child in the midst of a massacre of children and uses that child to deliver his people. And where Moses was able to deliver his people from slavery to the Egyptians, Joseph will be, uh, Jesus will be able to deliver all who believe in him from slavery to sin. And then finally, Act 3, we'll call it the return of the king. The return of the king. A couple years go by. And Herod eventually dies. So an angel speaks to Joseph again in a dream, telling him now to return to Israel. And they do return. But upon returning, they find out that Archelaus is now reigning over Judea. King Herod made a late change in his will that divided his territory up among three sons. And he gave Judea and Samaria to his son Archelaus, who is known to be ruthless and unstable. So it's no surprise that when Joseph learns this. He's afraid to return to Judea. He's then warned once more in a dream not to go there. So instead, they head to the northern part of Israel, to the region of Galilee, to a town called Nazareth. And it's in that region we'll see most of the Gospels take place. Herod had given Galilee to his other son, Antipas, also called Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch, who we see mentioned a few times in the Gospels. And so the family of three, they settle into the tiny town of Nazareth. Now, I know the Christmas song calls Bethlehem a little town, but if Bethlehem is a little town, then Nazareth is no more than a speck. It's thought that Nazareth was as small as four to 500 people at most, maybe smaller. It also wasn't an old city like Bethlehem either. It was just a recent tiny settlement in Galilee. Matthew then gives us one more fulfillment statement He says in verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew's on a roll because he gives us another fulfillment that is puzzling. This one even more than the others. He's actually not quoting any particular prophet here. As you can see, there's no quotation given either. He doesn't name a particular prophet. He actually says by the prophets. That's prophets, plural. And indeed, you could read every single word, every single verse, every single letter in the Old Testament, and you will not find anywhere that it says the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. There's nothing about Nazareth in the Old Testament because Nazareth didn't even exist yet. So how can Matthew say this is the fulfillment of the prophets? Well, we should understand that Matthew is not saying that any one prophet said this or that anyone mentioned Nazareth at all. Rather, he's pointing to a theme that is consistent among the prophets. And it's the prophetic theme, the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would basically come from nowhere. And because of that, he would be despised and rejected. There are several examples like Psalm 22:6 that speaks of the Messiah But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. We see that clearly fulfilled as Jesus is mocked on the cross. 
Isaiah 49, 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, a servant of rulers. Or Isaiah 53, 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. There was a clear prophetic expectation that the Messiah would not be welcomed by cheering crowds, but would be despised and scorned and rejected by his own people. And the gospel writers themselves pick up on this theme, and they show us that Nazareth plays into this theme in a significant way. Think of John's gospel in chapter one, where Jesus calls his first disciples. He calls Philip, and then Philip goes and tells Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, and it's actually Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? See, Nazareth did not have a good reputation, and the Nazarenes, those from Nazareth, were despised and looked down upon even by those in Galilee, the region it was located in. That's not to mention the people in Judea, where Jerusalem was located. They looked down upon Galileans in general. Judea was a center of commerce, power, education in Israel. Uh, Galilee was where all the farming and fishing happened. So the rich, powerful Judeans looked at the Galileans as being ignorant, uneducated people. Thus, the disciples are frequently recognized and mentioned as being Galileans. It was not a compliment. So the Judeans looked down on the Galileans, and even the Galileans looked down on the Nazarenes. So when Jesus is referred to any time as Jesus of Nazareth or being a Nazarene, it was actually meant to be an insult. It was meant to automatically cross Jesus off the list of being the Messiah or even being someone worth following or listening to at all. Because no one important, no one impressive, no one worth paying attention to could possibly come from Nazareth. That's what Matthew's wanting us to see. And the fact that Joseph took Mary and the baby to live in Nazareth, it solidified the fact that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. It's another reminder that God's ways are not our ways. God turns the expectations and ways of the world upside down when he accomplishes his purposes. You would expect the Messiah, the newborn king of the world, to be born in a palace. Instead, he's born in a stable. You'd expect him to live in an important city like Jerusalem. Instead, he lives in a backwater town like Nazareth. And it just fulfills the words of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Consider your own life. What have you done with Jesus? Have you accepted him or have you rejected him? If you're trying to find your way to God intellectually, you're going to come up short. If you're trying to find your way to God by signs and wonders, you're going to come up short. That's what many in Jesus' day did. The Greeks rejected him because it didn't make sense. They couldn't reason their way to salvation. It didn't make sense that God would die for sins. The Jews rejected him because he wasn't the kind of Messiah they expected or wanted. He didn't come as a conquering, powerful king, and no amount of miracles was going to be enough to convince them. But here's what 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We can only come to God through faith in Jesus. We can only receive forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. We can only escape the condemnation of our sins through faith in Jesus. And that is faith that is expressed in believing that Jesus is the true son of God. It's believing that he lived the perfect life and died the perfect sacrificial death on the cross. Then on the third day, God raised him victorious from the dead. And now he rules and reigns at the right hand of the father. It's faith expressed in confessing Jesus is Lord of your life and you're actively turning away from sin and turning towards following him. That is the way to salvation. That is the way to eternal life. And it comes with accepting Jesus, not rejecting him. And in these three short episodes here at the end of chapter two, we clearly see that God is a promise-keeping God. Again and again and again, God is doing what he promised he would do. At the same time, the enemy, Satan, is trying to stop God's plan. He did it in the garden through the serpent in the very beginning. He did it throughout the Old Testament, throughout the centuries, through evil men, people like Pharaoh, Goliath, Nebuchadnezzar, nations like the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and more. All those people in groups opposed to God's plans, but his plans can never be stopped. When God promised a Messiah would come, he was going to make sure a Messiah would come. That doesn't mean it was going to be easy and pretty. The forces of darkness are many and their deeds are wicked. There is a true struggle in a broken world, but God rescues the Messiah as an infant from a bloodthirsty king. He provides for him on the run and then brings him back where he will eventually begin his ministry. And all this should serve to remind us that we follow a promise-keeping God. And if he did it then, he will do it now. If he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. And let's bring this to a personal level. God's plan of redemption is not over. Christmas is not the end of the story. The cross, the resurrection, isn't even the end of the story. We are in it at this very moment. The first coming of Jesus also points us to the second coming of Jesus, that event that we eagerly await for when, the, when our Lord and Savior will return again. And he'll return to defeat Satan and the powers of darkness once and for all, and even death itself shall die. He'll gather all the saints, those who have come before and those who are still living. They'll receive glorified bodies and will enter into his heavenly everlasting joy. And because we have a promise-keeping God, we know he will do what he promised he will do. Throughout today and tomorrow, as you spend time with family and friends, be reminded of the Christmas story and be encouraged and be filled with hope that our God is a promise-keeping God. Will you pray with me?